basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, we have a very special interview episode because I'm talking to a couple of, well, let's call them Terranauts the Next Generation. Laura Bradbury and Frederick Forche both work for GHGSAT, a Canadian company that is doing big things with small satellites to combat climate change. Laura is the systems manager responsible for the systems engineering of GHG's latest generation of satellites. Well, Frederick is a satellite software specialist working on the satellite payload software. And uh, despite the fact that they're both comparatively um, useful compared to many of the uh, people we talk to here on Terranauts, together they have well more than a decade's worth of experience working in space. And that definitely makes them a couple of experienced Terranauts in anybody's book. Laura, Frederick, welcome to Terranauts. Thank you. So let before we we uh, talk about GHGSAT and, uh, and the exciting things that are going on there, even um, this week, um, let's talk a little bit about um, you guys. Um, Laura, where are you from? Um, so I guess uh, my background is um, uh, undergraduate in engineering science, um, followed by um, a master's at the University of Toronto Institute for Aerospace Studies. Um, so from Toronto. Um, and I guess following my master's, I stayed on as staff at the Space Flight Laboratory at Utahis, where I was doing systems engineering, um, AIT and satellite operations, and then subsequently uh, program management. And that's how I got to GHGSAT. Oh, did you grow up thinking that you wanted a career working in space? Is that why you ended up at SFL? Um, I think I've always been interested in space. I guess when I was younger, um, I followed the work on the shuttle program um, and like kind of always interested in astronomy um, as a kid. Um, like I enjoyed science and math in school. So um, I think it wasn't until high school that I that I realized that um, I knew for sure that I wanted to do um, like space as a uh, career. So. Was there something, are there any sort of news stories or events that had to do with space that, that you remember growing up? Um, I guess in, um, yeah, so I guess um, in terms of like the, in terms of the shuttle program, I guess, particularly like the return to flight after um, the Columbia um, disaster, I remember that. Um, particularly from around that time. And also it was kind of the time that I was entering into um, university. Um, so that kind of particularly had an influence, but um, also like um, in terms of my high school experience, I also did like some kind of engineering enrichment programs at U of T. Um, and um, so I was able to take courses that were taught by like PhD students at Utahis on like designing a Mars rover, for instance. Right, and that right. was really fascinating to me. Oh, so. that's great. Yes. Well, I remember shuttle return to flight as well, for sure. Frederick, what about you? Where did you uh, where did you grow up? So I'm uh, from Montreal um, and uh, grew up and I'm still in Montreal. And I studied basically uh, computer engineering uh, at Polytechnic Montreal. 
Uh, and so I did that and uh, got my master's and then joined uh, JGSAT straight away. Um, and, and was space something that, uh, that you had thought about, something that you wanted to do growing up? Yes, uh, I would say I, I don't think as much as, uh, let's say, Laura, it's definitely been an interest, um, you know, through childhood and, and, right. and growing up. It's space is, is fun and nice and <laughs> right but but it was I more the, the, it was more the 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 specific job at gsat that was appealing rather than or I, I but i i think i i slowly geared myself towards um wanting to work in space or at least in aerospace um kind of more at university um working on different projects sort of related and making friends that had similar interests and that kind of really geared me uh, towards that. So, I mean, the other thing that's really important about the work that's being done at GSAT, GHGSAT, of course, is that it's related to climate change. Yeah. Was, was that something, is that a topic that was something that was sort of um, important to you growing up? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, of course, since, um, you know, I'm probably young enough to be actually affected around the end of my life, mm. uh, seeing as thing goes right now. And of course, um, um if i get children and and actually rather is certainly going to be affected so it's it, it is yes a, a a strong concern uh and at the same time you know working with jhset uh you really get that feeling um regularly or kind of every day and i have lots of colleagues that are there for uh similar reasons really trying to see like what to try to make it better or, or less terrible, right. let's say. <laughs> right, right. What about you, Laura? Was was climate change something that was important to you growing up? Um, yeah, I mean, I think like it's um, in like recent years, like in the past like 10 years or so, it's definitely become like more at the forefront, like of my concerns, like kind of seeing like um, these like severe like weather events and stuff right. and like impacting right. the environment and like the people that are living in these regions. Um, I think that like, um, like what we do is like individuals um, shouldn't have like negative impacts on the environment and right. kind of like the wildlife in it. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's also sometimes hard to look at kind of the overall picture and, and think that you can make like any like sort of difference, I guess, as like one individual. Um, but I think, um, kind of like being responsible in your actions and stuff like um like reducing waste and but you guys really do actually kind of get to make a difference though i mean maybe we should just be a little clear i don't know which one of you is the best to describe exactly uh, what it is that ghg sat does maybe frederick since you're the one who's writing the software to do it um what is it that ghg sat is actually able to do with its satellites so we um we specialize ourselves in um basically targeting uh, individual um, methane uh, emitters. So kind of right at the site level or the you know compressor station, pipeline, et cetera, uh, all of those installations or coal mines, um, um, things like that. Um, so, so you're actually detecting the methane where it's being produced. Exactly. Um, and also, you know, waste management facilities and right. all of that. Uh, so 
and then uh, with that information, basically we we take that we estimate if there's let's say a, a methane leak or or something, uh, estimate the amount and try to contact uh, you know the relevant uh, people uh, around the world to actually fix it uh, as much as possible. Um, so that's that's the basis of what we do uh, with our satellites at JGSAT. So so. Laura, does that, you know, does that make a difference to you that every day, you, you know, as you said, a lot of people talk about doing things. And I mean, we, we all have contributions we can make in terms of how much we consume, but not all of us get to make a contribution in terms of actually solving the problem uh, every day. But but that's kind of what you guys are doing. Is that is that a, important to you? Yeah, I find it really like rewarding to be able to make like such a positive um, impact. Like, um, I think like the work that um, we're doing at GHGSAT is helping to develop like a clear um, picture of emission sources and rates um, around the world. And we're detecting a lot of um, a lot of emissions and mitigating a lot of emissions as well. So, I mean, you guys have detected stuff that nobody even knew was happening, right? Like sizable, not, not just a little bit of methane either, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, like there are, there are other public satellites that are like detecting uh, methane, but um, like generally they're um, kind of more wide area um, regions, I guess. So GHGSAT is able to pinpoint emissions to like certain um, facilities uh, based on the uh, like uh, detection threshold and and spatial resolution. So. Right. So what 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 are those thresholds? What what are what level of sensitivity are you actually able to achieve? Either either one of you can answer. Yeah. So in terms of the detection um, threshold, we can get down to around 100 kilograms per hour, and then in terms of our um, spatial resolution, is about like 30 meters. So. So so like a 30 meter square. So so like you can find four barbecue tanks worth of methane in the size of something in my backyard that's um from from how high up we're around 500 kilometers just over. So 500 kilometers wow so so that's an impressive uh level of uh precision to be able to to achieve um and to be able to achieve it from from orbit like um Laura, why do you think space is the best way to be solving this problem? Um, so I guess um, the traditional method, I suppose, of monitoring uh, methane leaks would um, have companies like use ground crews with kind of like handheld um, measuring devices. Um, to capture data, but some of the sites, I guess, are kind of difficult to get to, so it kind of creates inconsistencies in what um, people are able to detect and report, so, um, and it costs, like, a lot of money to cover, like, large areas of ground, whereas, like, um, satellites are, like, able to, you know, quickly pinpoint emissions from anywhere in the world, um, and, uh, 
like I was mentioning before, you can kind of use like a tiered um, approach as well. So there's like um, public satellites such as uh, Sentinel that do wide area uh, methane detection to identify like um, areas that would be hotspots and they can also pick up super emitters. But then um, you can come in with the GHGSAT satellites and do um, like use that data to target um, our satellites at particular areas so that we can find um, the facil facilities in those regions that are actually emitting the methane, I guess. So um, I see it as a lot easier way to, to cover large areas at a fraction of the cost. Well, and, and to actually, you know, I mean, be, you know, the thing is, you'd think that if you were emitting a whole bunch of methane, you'd know, but uh, it's colorless and it's, and it's uh, uh, odorless. And, and, and so in point of fact, you guys have actually found people who've been emitting a lot of methane, didn't even know uh, that they were doing it. And, and you probably never would have been able to convince them that they were the problem if you didn't have the resolution and the precision that you do. Is that fair to say, Frederick? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. And, and it's, it's one of the tricky parts, let's say, with methane compared to CO2, um, is that, you know, let's say CO2 is basically the, the, the residue from, from burning and things like that. So it's, it's pretty easy to, um, you know, just do the math like my, my process and put it that much and it produces that much CO2. And that's, that's what I emitted while methane is, uh, at least let's say in oil and gas and, and things like that is, is really mostly leaks, uh, at, at the production and on, in remote areas. And it's, it's hard to find. I mean, yeah, it, it, <laughs> if you leak really, really, really much, your accountant might notice that like in six yeah, months. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. So, so, I mean, I guess I'm just, you know, so this level of precision really does give us access to a lot of mitigation measures that we just didn't have until, until essentially the GHG set technology came along. And it's, I see it, it's, it's also kind of a low hanging fruit, if, if you will, if, if such a thing exists in, in climate sure. change and in the way that it's, um, you know, it's, especially like oil and gas leaks, it's really just fixed. Yeah, leaking. well, if this is mostly leaks anyways, it's stuff that people would want to stop. It's not like you're asking people to change their behavior. You're just, you're just pointing out to them that they're, that they have a problem they might even not know they had. Yeah, and, and it's it's the stuff they sell in the end. So it's uh, really, everybody's a winner. Uh, right, and in fact, a lot of your customers are actually the people who want to detect leaks, not not to, to uh, you know, not just for climate change, but because it's economically important to them to make sure that they're not actually emitting uh, methane that they didn't know they were, right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So achieving that level of uh, precision, though, um, that's hard, right? I'm not, I'm not wrong in saying that, right? This, this is not an easy thing to do, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not the optical specialist on the team, but I know. Um... You know the amount of work that they do is is really phenomenal, and um, the the difficulty of it, and and the precision of of you know our instruments is is at least as a as a layperson, just you know when when you get told that um, uh, let's say this this critical piece is is kind of um, two mirrors parallel to one another, and and if your parallelism is is off, like one is like slightly crooked by like. 10 nanometers or something like that, it won't work and you won't be right. able to do to do it. That's <laughs> so that's 10 nanometers 
Yeah, you know, which is there's a minus twelve in there in the exponent to the ten, right? In, yeah, in, I, <laughs> in, in I tried to find a figure uh, to and, kind of represent it, but it's yeah, you know, yeah, no, but it's it's so you're talking about things that have to be, you know, made parallel to within ten to the minus twelve for for mirrors that are how big, Laura? Are they millimeters? Are they centimeters? How big are these mirrors that you have to make that that closely parallel? like centimeters in size yeah yeah, yeah centimeters so mm -hmm. so you know that's like one part in 10 to the minus 10 by my math um or one part in 10 to the 10 <clears throat> that's that's a that's a pretty impressive achievement uh, getting to that level of precision has got to require a lot of care and attention by a lot of people doesn't it laura yeah, I mean, like Frederick, I'm also not um, an optical uh, specialist, but um, yeah, it, it requires a lot of um, a lot of um, care and effort. Um, vibration testing makes us all uh, quite nervous here. So. Yeah, well, well, for the uninitiated, what does a vibration test of this extremely sensitive optical uh, instrument look like when you attend one? Um, so, yeah, so I guess we generally receive a um, vibration profile from um, a launch vehicle provider. Um, and if we don't know which vehicle we're on, um, we'll develop like a composite um, profile. So we'll do um, kind of like uh, sign vibration tests, random vibration tests in all three axes in order to mimic the loads that you would experience um, upon launch. So. Yeah, all of which is a very technical way of saying you take this extremely sensitive electronic instrument and put it on a, a table and and you know literally vibrate it up and down um, violently, right? Like like violently. It it's it's uh it's not a for the faint of heart to watch your extremely sensitive instrument uh, be bounced around on a vibration table, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I mean. You know, what sort of things do you really have to pay attention to, to make sure that you're going to survive, you know, not only, and, and of course, the reason that you torture the equipment then is because if something's going to go wrong, you'd rather it went wrong on the vibration table than on the rocket, right? Like, like have there ever been times when you realize that, you know, the, the margin between uh, passing those tests and not passing those tests uh, rests on some some really small attention to detail earlier on in the process. I think in general, it's all throughout the the design process in terms of um, like the design to make sure that you have like appropriate margins um, and also like assembling and testing. Like the satellite also requires like a lot of care and attention to detail and making sure that all the telemetry is, is reviewed, that you're getting the results that you're expecting back from all the tests that you perform, so. So, so um, what generation of satellite are you on currently? So C, C3 to C5, which we're launching in uh, about three weeks, if, if right. everything goes well, uh, would be our fourth generation of satellites. So they're, they're pretty similar to our Later satellite, which we launched uh, last year, uh, right? Fujitsu C2. So, how many satellites do you have on orbit now? So, we have three satellites in orbit now. Um, one since uh, 2016, which was kind of the demo satellite to show that the concept worked. Right. Uh, and then uh, two were launched in the past uh, year and a half, two years. Yeah. 
um, C1 and C2, which uh, were, let's say, much, which gradually uh, had, you know, all the lessons learned from from that demo satellites. Uh, so, so what what has improved as the as the generations of satellites have gone on? So the, the biggest improvement uh, was going from our original demo satellite to uh, to the second one, uh, C1, where we're really talking about an, an order of magnitude. So at least um, C1 is at least 10 times better or has a 10 times lower emission threshold uh, than uh, GHZD because, you know, lessons learned. And I, I'm, I'm sure as, as, as you vented, uh, uh, as as you vented a few minutes ago, uh, these instruments need to be really, really precise to see something in in the order of uh, you know, um, like you've said, four four big barbecue tanks in an hour. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, I mean, I I think it's important to understand just just how small a needle and how big a haystack uh, you guys are finding, and why. I mean, there's a reason why. We haven't been doing this for the for 60 years, I and mean, we've been going to space for more than 60 years. We haven't been doing this stuff for nearly that long because we hadn't figured out how to do it well enough to make a difference. I think. Um, so, uh, you by the way, you guys keep referring to your satellites um, in, in your very technical language with the letter and a number, but that's not how the rest of the world uh, knows GHG sat satellites, right? They they actually have names, and and there's a story behind behind uh, the names. And I will point out, actually, that three years ago when I started Terranauts, my very first guest was actually Stefan Germain, uh, who is the founder of GHGSAT, and I guess your, your current boss. So, um, but your first, uh, the first satellite was called Claire, which, which I thought was a great, um, uh, a, a great name in both French and English. But then after that, um, somebody wanted to explain to me how you ended up naming, how we, we ended up naming the rest of the GHG uh, satellites, Laura? How, how did they get their names now? Yeah, their names after um, the children of the employees of, of GHGSAT. So I think it's a, it's a good way to um, recognize um, like what we're, what we're doing here. I, I, I've always thought it was, I thought it was fantastic when I, when I first heard about it. And so, so who is up there now? We have Claire. And then after that, we have Iris. Iris. Well, that's a great name for a optical satellite. And then, and then Hugo. Then Hugo. Okay. We got away from the optical theme now. Okay. So, so skill testing question. Uh, you're launching three satellites in the next oh two weeks. Uh, what are their names? Aha! They are Luca, Penny, and Diaco. Okay, good. Because if you hadn't gotten those right, then you'd have some coworkers who were going to want to know why, right? So, um, so you're two weeks from launching, from doubling the number of satellites you have on orbit. Um, one suspects it's been a busy couple of months. Um, what is it like uh, working on a launch campaign, especially for a launch campaign that's literally doubling the company's uh, capacity? And I guess, Laura, you, I suppose you've both been involved, but that sounds a lot more like something that you would have been intimately involved in over the last couple. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so the preparations were kind of ongoing with um, SpaceX for quite some time. Um, the team is um, down there right now um, doing the preparations. Um, so they'll be doing um, inspections and testing and then 
um, mounting um, satellites to the rockets. But um, yeah, it's been a um, it's been a, a long long process, I guess. What has to happen from the time that you actually, uh, you know, you know what you want to build, uh, and may, maybe you even built it. What actually has to happen between then and the time that it's actually mated to the SpaceX rocket? Um, in terms of like the preparations that um, like have to take place, um, so I guess um, uh, like the design was was finalized. Um, the satellites were all assembled um, in uh, SFL's uh, clean room. They went through a um, series of environmental tests, um, so uh, electromagnetic magnetic, uh, compatibility testing. Um, TVAC, so that's a thermal vacuum, um, and also vibration testing. Um, and so that's uh, kind of the main series of activities um, to prepare the satellite. And then there's also like software testing and and uh, various other. So, so, um, so every time you torture the satellite, Frederick, you have to run your software on it again to make sure that everything is still functional. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's that's the idea. And comparing, let's say, a, from a baseline, making sure our results are pretty right. much the same. Right. Um, and, and how large are, are, are each of the satellites, both in size and weight? So they're about the size of your microwave. So something like, okay, okay. what is it? Um, uh, I, think that's, I think that's the size that everybody, and is that about yeah. how much they weigh as well? About, uh, from memory about 20 kilos yeah so um, probably about the same yeah. yeah so so that is a pretty small package to get that level of uh precision out of so so now that they're down at the cape um so what's happening today and tomorrow and in in the subsequent days to to uh the ghg satellites so yeah the so the team is uh carefully um taking the satellite out of their you know shipping container and right uh, uh, all of that, and then uh, running as many checks as possible to uh, to make sure that nothing happened during transport. And we talk, uh, let's say, about comparing, you know, um, results to a baseline. So we'll be doing uh, in the next few days, let's say, optical tests and radio tests, and right. uh, all of that to make sure that nothing happened in transit and that their the satellites are still in good good shape. Uh, and that's mainly it. And then uh, they're basically lifted uh, crane to be integrated with with the rocket uh, so they're they're integrated to the payload carrier that's on the upper stage of the space what what which breed of spacex uh rocket is it that you're launching on it's a it's a standard falcon 9 a falcon uh, 9 yeah uh and, and so uh you, you probably have lots of uh uh of friends on your journey to space then there's probably literally 10 that uh, spacex probably doesn't say how many but there's somewhere between 30 and 60 or something uh, other satellites that are going to join you on your journey to space, I guess. Yeah, the, the SpaceX transporter mission is is really a, a lot of satellite on each on each launch. Actually, um, Hugo, um, which launched last year on on the first time SpaceX has done this, this kind of thing, and it was over 100 satellites uh, that were launching at the same time. Yeah. Wow. Now, do, does everybody get dropped at the same place? Like, how, Laura, how do you how do you make sure that you get to your 
orbit when there's literally hundreds of you hitching a ride like that? Yeah, each um, each slot will have a different um, deployment time. Um, okay. so I think we're still uh, waiting on that information, but um, yeah, we'll we'll know that information from SpaceX. We'll know our um, predicted um, orbital parameters um, from SpaceX as well. Right. Um, but it can be a little tricky um, post launch and deployment from the separation system to initially find um, your satellite. You sometimes have to sweep back and forth with the antenna until you okay, pick up Okay, because you've got to get the antenna actually pointed at the satellite so you can talk to it. So, yeah, and, and it's not very big, but space is. Uh, so, yeah, that must be. Uh, does that make for some exciting times uh, just after deployment? Sometimes, but generally we have a good enough idea of where it is in the orbit um, to be right. able to uh, find it on the first pass. Right. Well, that's good. So uh, when is launch? It is May 25th. May 25th. And and I, I take it that neither of you are attending the launch this time. No, we won't be at the uh, at the launch, but uh, we'll both be um, at uh, SFL actually for the uh, LEOP and uh, launch and early operations and commissioning. So okay, so so like in the the equivalent of mission control in, in space flight laboratory. Yeah. Have you have you guys ever been to launches or launch sites before? Yeah, uh, we both have. I guess uh, Fred's experience is a little bit more recent than mine with uh, with uh, SpaceX. Yeah, I I helped integrate uh, Hugo uh, at SpaceX uh, last year, but sadly I, I couldn't stay um, for the launch. So what was it that that was working at the Cape? Yeah, that was working at what, the Cape. What, what was that like? Uh, well, apart from COVID, which was a big thing back then. Sure. Before <laughs> what, what time of year? What time of year was it at the Cape? Uh, it was uh, end of December, beginning of January. Uh, of you actually hit the window between the hot weather and the hurricane season. I, I still, I still swam in the ocean. No, that's that. That's something I, I didn't understand why no one else was swimming on January first, because the water was really warm. Oh, it would like, be. It would be warmer than you'd get here in yeah, the middle yeah, of summer. Sure. It, 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 it was fine. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, uh, and, and Laura, what, uh, what about you? Yeah, I've been to a few different um, launch campaigns um, during my time at SFL. So a couple of um, campaigns in, uh, in Baikonur, uh, which were really interesting. So, so just, just back the truck up for a sec for people who don't know where, where is Baikonur? Um, it's an area in uh, Kazakhstan. Right. Um, at, to put it bluntly, Baikonur is not very close to very many things, right? No, it uh, it took a, a little while to get there. Yeah. Like, how, how does one get to Baikonur? Um, traditionally, you well, um, there's a, a charter, I think, from uh, Moscow, and okay. that's how we we got there. So you have to first get to Moscow. But but the flight from Moscow to Baikonur is probably that's a ways too, right? It was several hours. Yeah. 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 It's uh. uh you know, Russia's a big place. Um, and Baikonur, you know, for all that it is uh, literally in the middle of nowhere, it's also pretty famous in that it, it has always been the Russian Cosmodrome. It's where Yuri Gagarin launched from, right? 
Yeah, it is quite historically significant. I guess it's kind of like the birthplace of space, I guess, with both yeah. um, Sputnik um, and uh, Yuri Gagarin uh, launching from that site. So. Okay, so so what's it like? To, uh, did you actually attend the launch? No, uh, just on the launch campaign, uh, like for it as well, we leave before the actual launch, um, because like we're generally involved in, um, in commissioning and Oh, so you you have to get back. Well, you know what? The same thing happened to me. I got invited to about five times as many shuttle launches as I ever went to, because most of the time I had to work in mission control right after launch. So I couldn't go to the launch. Um, um, what but what's it like at Baikonur? Do you get a really real sense of the history of spaceflight when you're there? Yeah, it's um, um, it's really interesting. It's a reasonably like sized um, town. I guess there's um, there's a museum on site. There's various like statues um, around the town. Um, there's like a cosmonaut hotel, which has like a walkway with all the trees that the astronauts and cosmonauts have planted. So it's, um, it's, um, it's a pretty unique place, I guess. Yeah. And it's very dry though. It's like literally in the middle of a desert, right? Yeah. It's, it's very desert-like in that area. So it's about as different from Cape Canaveral as it's possible to be probably. Um, have you been to anywhere else where they launch? Uh, stuff into space yeah also um in uh um russia also um uh worked on a new um cosmodrome it's in um eastern russia of astoshny oh. um that was the last launch campaign i was on and also um, one in india as well really well you have you have seen a lot of launch sites have you actually been to a launch for all of the launch sites that you've seen um I've seen one launch um, while I was on site in in Baikonur. Oh, so it wasn't your it wasn't your launch, but somebody else's launch. What uh, what was that like? How close were you to the launch? Um, we weren't actually all that close, but um, it was like you could still see it, so it was quite interesting to be there. So, um, you know, we have talked uh, often on on this show on Terranauts about the fact that. You know, most people who 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 are Terranauts who do exactly the kind of jobs that you guys are doing are pretty, um, you know, ordinary people who just have the good fortune to be part of some pretty extraordinary things. Um, you know, apart from the stuff that we've talked about, what uh, are there days when you sit back and think that you're really glad to be part of things that you wouldn't get to be a part of if you didn't have the job that you do, Frederick? Yeah, um, I mean, that's... Working in space is a really interesting challenge because basically every day something can go wrong and, um, you know, figuring it out and fixing it while the thing is uh, burning away at, you know, seven kilometer per second, yes. 500 kilometer over the earth is, yes. uh, <laughs> is, is, is quite a challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the things I, I remember the most fondly were probably... Um, first launch uh um so that that would have been iris for me uh and kind of the follow-up first few days of uh you know initial operations and commissioning and and, and, and uh, yeah realizing the software that you helped write is actually not on the planet with you anymore when it's when it's actually working right oh yeah uh especially i think one of the in our initial um instrument checkout you know uh one of the thing is verifying uh that 
our onboard GPS is functioning properly. Right. Uh, and 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 just you know seeing the numbers and like the altitude and the speed there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Was. <laughs> Which are quite different than the ones you get in your car every day. Put oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, about, what about you, Laura? What are some things that you've done that, that you're pretty sure you wouldn't have gotten to do if you weren't in this business? Yeah, like having the opportunity to have something that you worked on um, be launched into space, I think, is, is pretty exciting. And also being, being able to operate um, like the satellites that you worked on right. um, in space as well. Um, I think it's, uh, it's pretty rewarding. Yeah. So, um, you know, if there are people out there who are listening to this, people a bit younger than you who are thinking that they would like to have a career like you working in the space business. Is there any advice uh, that you would give them? Um, yeah, I guess uh, in terms of advice, um, I mean, uh, like, I guess, like, don't be shy to reach out to people for, um, like, in the field for um, advice or, or guidance, like, um, I guess if, if you're in like university, it could be a professor or like an alumnus, or if you're working, it could be like a more senior colleague because people are um, generally more than happy to like help out um, and to um, and to uh, to help you um, like succeed in your goals. Right. And, and Frederick, what would you say? Yeah, defensively not being afraid of uh, reaching out. Uh, that's for sure. Um, and also, at least from a personal experience, I think, uh, especially at university, uh, there are plenty of um, student groups that will do kind of things like engineering competitions and things like that. And that is a very good way, in, in, in my opinion, to learn uh, and uh, kind of a bit see what, what confirm what your interests are and um, get, you know, a, a bit more practical experience that can lead you to 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 your goals and and is it something that you would recommend to people as you as you sit here waiting in the next two weeks to see another piece of your handiwork uh launched into space is that is that something that you think uh uh more people should be interested in doing uh yeah i mean of, of course it, it's sp spending your free time working on xyz project instead of um you know going out or relaxing might be difficult and a university setting so it to to each his own um i know it helped me quite a bit um, yeah. so i would recommend it uh and also kind of it's a bit like having a hobby but where you know 20 30 50 people share the same hobby and you can work together and achieve something that's that was a pretty good experience would you agree with that laura yeah i think so um as well like um like in in university it was um involved in kind of doing a like space design competition for high school right. students and i think right. that that um that really like helped them because it gave them like exposure to to more knowledgeable like people and allowed them to get that experience like early on in their mm. education so well you you are both very understated about what you and what ghg set uh, have achieved, but I uh, I still think it's it's very impressive. I it's part of the reason why Stefan was one of my first guests. I think the achievement of the company has been impressive, and I think that that what you guys do for a living um, is also very impressive. 
And, uh, and I'm glad that you took the time to come and talk to us today on Terranauts. Thank you. Thank you. It was great talking to you. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.